Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thank you. You can be seated. Good morning, and a Merry Christmas. <laughs> uh, uh, my name is Chris. If I haven't gotten the, the privilege to, to, to meet uh you yet before this morning, um, but we want to just, uh, if you're visiting this morning, just wish you a very Merry Christmas on behalf of our King's Cross uh, Church family. Uh, we're going to read uh, a bit of the Christmas story from uh, the end of Matthew 1, so if you do have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn uh, to that book. It's the first book of the New Testament. Uh, my guess is uh, chapter 1 will be right there, not the first page for you. Um, and as you're turning there... Um, or once you turn there, would you uh, bow your heads and and pray with me? Uh, Lord God, we we thank you just for the joy of the Christmas season and uh, uh, just the the way that we've been blessed by the singing of our children, uh, just for the uh, our King's Cross family, uh, just to be reminded, Lord, that, that you have brought joy into uh, this world through your son, Jesus. As we spend uh, time in these uh, eight verses in Matthew chapter one, I, I pray, Lord, uh, that you would just awaken our hearts to what this season is truly all about what this historic uh, event is really all about, that we might see its beauty and have a taste of your glory uh, as we spend time in your word this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So uh, we're here to, to celebrate uh, an event, to, here to celebrate a day and an event that has literally split history in, in two. Right? I mean, split history into uh, BC, before Christ, and the Latin Anno Domini, uh, which is in the year of our Lord. Uh, Christmas is the most widely celebrated holiday in the world, which, on the one hand, is a really beautiful thing. Right? On the one hand, it's a really beautiful thing because the fact that it is the most widely celebrated uh, holiday in the world is a beautiful thing because it bears witness to the fact that Jesus has left his mark on human history in a way that just cannot be ignored. 
We're just forced to reckon with that every single Christmas season. Regardless of your creed, regardless of your faith background, the Christmas season just smacks us in the face once a year and and forces us to consider the weight of this man, Jesus, the weight that his presence and his coming has made on our world. But on the other hand, there's a danger in the widespread familiarity that we have with this holiday. We have to sort of intentionally cut through all like the sentimental, seasonal flair to get a fresh encounter with the bigness of Christmas and the transcendent beauty of what the Christmas story is really telling us. Uh, at, at one point, uh, in during my, my pastoral residency, uh, they sent a group of us out to uh, Little Rock, Arkansas for a couple of weeks. And um, at the end of one of these these trips, uh, uh, the the trainers uh, they out of an they they like wanted to to bless us. They wanted to take us out, and so they asked us uh, after a long week of training. They're like, "Hey, what kind of, kind of food are you guys in the mood for?" Uh, to which I appropriately responded, "Pizza." Right? Because if you know anything about me, like I love pizza, and then everyone around the table is like, yeah, pizza sounds that that sounds amazing. That 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 sounds like it'll hit the spot. And that's when I knew like these were my people, right? And so we 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 said we want to we want to uh, to to go to a good pizza joint. And so like one of our teachers that week, one of our trainers said, Oh man, you guys are gonna love this one pizza spot that's just just downtown. Uh, it's just in the center of downtown. It's one of my favorite places to go in the whole city. And so we're all excited. Our mouths are watering. And we go to this, this pizza place. Uh, and the guy who recommended the pizza place to us orders a salad. <laughs> he orders a salad and he asks for extra dressing. And we're like, dude, you're not getting pizza? Like, you, you, you're not getting pizza at the, the pizza place? And he's like, oh, I've actually never had the pizza here. <laughs> he's like, but man, they had the best dressing. It's to die for. And we're like, what? Like, we came here for pizza. Like, we asked for pizza. The, the, like the whole thing, the whole reason that we went to this place was because you talked up what we thought was the pizza. Uh, it was just this really funny moment uh, and really disappointing moment. Uh, because, I mean, really, I have nothing against salad. To be clear, I have nothing against salad or supposedly heavenly dressing, but what we really needed, what we really wanted, what we really desired in that moment was Little Rock's best pizza. We could also say, look, there's nothing wrong with the tinsel and the trees, with the presents and the parties, with the gathering of friends and family and the sharing of good food. Like, I am a fan of all of that. Nothing wrong with enjoying the sentimental aspects of this season. But what we really need this time of year is the world's best news. The world's best news. What we really need is rest for the weary, strength for the weak, hope for the hopeless, Forgiveness and redemption for the sinner like me and like you. 
You see, the true point of the Christmas story is the good news, the glorious news that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh and was born of a virgin in Bethlehem to bring salvation to us all. And so let's not get too familiar with the Christmas story that all it gets reduced to us is just mere sentimentality. I love the way that Paul Tripp articulates this in his Advent devotional. In the, the beginning of his devotional, in the introduction, he, he, he has this wonderful little paragraph where he says, familiarity often does bad things to us. Often when we become familiar with things, we begin to take them for granted. When we are familiar with things, we tend to quit examining them. Often, when we are familiar with things, we quit noticing them. When we are familiar with things, Tripp says, we tend not to celebrate them as we once did. Familiarity tends to rob us of our wonder. And so here's my goal for us this morning in Matthew 1. Let's recapture a sense of wonder. Let's recapture a sense of wonder of the season. Over the last few weeks in this Advent series that we've been doing, we started by talking about the anticipation, how the world in its brokenness, covered with the shadow of sin, has anticipated and longed for a Savior. Last week, we talked about what it means for that Savior to have arrived. We went from anticipation to arrival, and this morning, this morning, I want us to consider the adoration of Christ the Son. What does it mean to adore Him? Let us relearn what it means to come and let us adore Him. But before you can truly delight in the Christmas story, you must first let it truly disrupt you. All right, if you, if, you, if you want to truly delight in the Christmas story, before we get there, we need to first let it disrupt you. And when I say that word disrupt, I mean it in the best sense of the word, where, where we're saying, look, don't be too familiar with this story that it leaves you unmoved, right? it leaves you unaffected. And so let's begin, actually, with the very first verse in Matthew chapter 1. And if you've turned there, Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then if you look at the following verses, just a preview of those next 16 verses, you see it just lists out and lays out the lineage of Jesus. Name after name after name, laying out the lineage of Jesus. And here's the first thing I want you to see this morning, is that the Christmas story disrupts, in the best sense, our view of all history. The Christmas story disrupts our view of history. It awakens us to the reality that God has a sovereign plan for human history to save us. You see, Matthew started his account of Jesus' life by name-dropping David and Abraham in verse, in verse 1 there. He says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. When Matthew drops those names, his original readers would know the significance of those names. 
they would remember the covenants that God made to their forefather, Abraham, and to one of their first kings, David. The covenants he made to them where he promised them, where God made a covenant and said that through them, through their seed, through their lineage, through their family, God would bring hope to the world. And so Matthew lays out the genealogy of Jesus in the first 16 verses, showing us that God is good on his promises. His redeeming love and grace are unstoppable. The promise he made to Eve in the garden, the promise he made to Abraham on the mountain, the promise he made to David was as good as done. His redeeming love and grace are unstoppable because he is the sovereign one over all history. Let that fact disrupt you this morning in the best sense of that word. Let it arrest your attention. I mean, you got to imagine that when, when, when the, the original readers of Matthew 1, when they got to this point, when they read those names, that would have really grabbed, it would have really arrested their attention. They would have been like, man, this changes everything. Wait, you're telling us that what we've longed for for so many centuries, that promise that God made to our forefather Abraham, that he made to King David, that that's happening? That that's real? That that's true? That has broke into history? The original readers of Matthew 1 would have been like, their minds would have been blown. Like, wow, this changes everything. It changes everything. It's like the same sense like when Lucy stumbled out of the wardrobe into Narnia, discovered the prophecy about her family, her and her siblings, and just changed everything. Or when Harry got that letter from Hogwarts, <laughs> learned about his lineage, or when Luke discovered who his father was, that the force was real, disrupting in the best sense the status quo, what they understood about how things were, being awakened to the greater reality that is unfolding all around them. And notice Matthew doesn't begin the story of Jesus' birth with these, these nebulous words, once upon a time, a long time ago. In the galaxy far, far away. No, he describes the place that Jesus has in history by listing these names. That's how Matthew starts. He doesn't begin with once upon a time. He begins with the names of David and of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob. If you were with us a couple months ago in, in the book of Haggai, you see Zerubbabel in verses 12 and 13. These are real people. You could trace their lineage. He's revealing, Matthew is revealing Jesus' place in our history, in our time, that the Son of God is not a character from a far and distant fable. He's a character in the real story that you and I inhabit that you and I live in right now. God wouldn't leave our world broken. He refused to leave our world broken in its sin-scarred condition. He did not want to leave us in our sin and trapped in a world of pain and suffering with no hope in sight. And so when we broke the world with our sin, beginning in Genesis 3, God in His grace, He made a plan. 
He made a plan to step into our mess and save us from ourselves in real time, in a real place. As Matthew 1, verse 1 through 16 testifies. Then read on with me on what he says in verse 18. Matthew 1, 18 and 19 says this. Now, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, uh, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, a righteous man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now I want you to imagine just a staggering disruptive scenery that verses 18 and 19 that we just read must have been for those characters. I mean, Joseph, it's clear that he did not see this coming, right? He did not see this coming. He was betrothed to Mary, which was customary of that their time. You see, betrothal, uh, we, we do marriage differently uh, today than they did back then. Betrothal was like a step sort of between engagement and marriage. Like when we get married today, uh, it is at that moment on your wedding day legally binding and if you're a believer, like spiritually binding as well, Right? It is legally binding and spiritually binding. But back then, when you got betrothed, you were already legally bound. And you were spiritually bound in some sense, but then you were especially spiritually bound on your actual wedding day. And so that's why it says they were betrothed. Uh, they were like hyper-engaged. We could, we, could, we could talk about it that way, right? Uh, so they were hyper-engaged, but like because they were betrothed, they were still legally bound, and so to separate would require some uh, process of divorce. And when you were uh, betrothed, a, a couple would not, they would not live together. They would not sleep together uh, until after their wedding. Even though they were legally bound, they said, look, we're not fully spiritually bound. And so we're not going to be together. We're not going to lay together. And so you got to understand here that, that, that Joseph, Joseph, He's betrothed to Mary. He loves Mary. And when you dig into the history of this, Mary and him grew up together in a small town. So imagine, if you would with me, that they kind of knew each other since they were little kids. He's known her his whole life. He loves her. He wants to marry her. He's betrothed to her. But then, verse 18 drops. But then the unthinkable happens to Mary and Joseph. Mary is found with child. She's pregnant. She's pregnant. And somewhere between the events of verse 18 and events in verse 19, Mary had to break this news to Joseph. Imagine how difficult that conversation must have been. Mary's like, Joseph, we need to talk. <laughs> we need to talk. I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant, but, but, but it's, not, it's not what you think. I swear I have not been unfaithful to you. I swear I have kept my word, my bond to you. I've been faithful to you. So l l let me explain to you how this happened. This angel 
came to me and told me that I found favor with the Lord, that I would conceive in my womb supernaturally, that I would bear a son, that his name would be the name of the Son of the Most High, of God, of Yahweh. And the Lord is going to give him the key to the kingdom of our descendant, David. He would give him, our son, the seat of that throne and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Like imagine how difficult and awkward that conversation must have been. Imagine how heart-wrenching that must have been for Joseph. Joseph loved Mary. She's telling him this story. She likely has tears in her eyes. He probably has tears streaming down his face. And you can't really blame the guy, but he, he in that moment, he, he doesn't believe her. It's like, no kidding, right? Like imagine she's telling him, all these things, and he's like, I don't know, Mary, that sounds like a stretch, right? That sounds like a stretch. How heartbroken he must have been. You see, from, from his vantage point, she for sure did him wrong, that she was unfaithful. Even if he mar- and even if he married her right away, Like a scandal would ensue. He knew that. Even if he married her right away, like people aren't dumb. They'll do the math. Like if you get married in February and have a baby in May, people would kind of know what that means, right? And so Joseph, he was a righteous man. He came from a royal lineage. And if if people thought that he knocked her up before they got married, it would bring disgrace upon not just her, but upon him and his family. And so in order to, admittedly selfishly, right, in order to protect his reputation, he resolved to divorce her. But but he, he felt this tension that because he loves her, he wanted to divorce her quietly. He didn't want to make a big scene about it because he cared about her. I want us to see in the middle of these verses, the Christmas story, it also disrupts our sense of priorities. It also disrupts our sense of what we value and what we consider important. The Christmas story disrupts our sense of what we value and prioritize. prioritize. You see, for Joseph to follow the Lord and to trust Christ, he would have to accept he might lose his reputation. He would have to accept being misunderstood by others, being shamed. You see, Joseph in verse 18, leading into verse 19, Joseph valued his popularity, his acceptance of others. He valued them. But the Christmas story confronted him. If he wanted to follow the Lord, he's going to have to be okay with giving up the approval of others. He'd gain the approval of God in the process, but he'd have to be willing to give up, in some sense, the approval of others. And so, in verse 20, God, in His grace, intervenes. Intervenes to woo Joseph in and to start to, to, to change and mold and transform his heart. Read verse 20 with me, verse 20 through 25. It says... 
But as he considered these things, as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. I mean, if Joseph wasn't shocked before, he's for sure going to be shocked now, right? This angel appears to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, descendant of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then verse 24, by the grace of God, Joseph responds. It says, Joseph woke from his sleep. And he did, as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. God, in his grace, starts to change Joseph's heart to rearrange his values and his priorities. Theologian Don Carson articulates it this way. He says, it was no doubt that divine grace, God's grace, it was no doubt that divine grace solicited Mary's cooperation before conception and Joseph's cooperation only after it. Here, Joseph is drawn into the mystery of the incarnation. You see, at this moment, when the grace of God opened Joseph's eyes to the beauty of what was happening, everything changed for him. He went public. He said, I'm going to marry this woman. Regardless of the scandal, regardless of the misinterpretation and misunderstanding, I'm going to marry this woman and I'm going to adopt this child as my own. I want you to think about the radical change that happened in Joseph's heart to make that happen. He went from being ashamed of Mary and protecting himself to sharing in her shame. I mean, he would have to deal with the fact that his son, his adoptive son, Jesus, would be considered a bastard for the rest of his life. I mean, we see Jesus was made fun of for that uh, in the, later on in the Gospels. He, Joseph would have to deal with the fact that, Je- that, that Jesus would be considered a bastard. Joseph would have to deal with the fact that his wife would be called a whore and that he himself would be mocked because of all that. Yet a change has happened in his heart. And he says, look, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that because I love Mary. I love Jesus. I love the Lord my God, and I trust what he's doing in and through my life. I care more about what God thinks than I do about what they think. His whole value system got flipped on its head. It was a holy disruption, we could call it. A holy disruption, and it was the best thing for him. And in the words of the angel, and in the commentary that follows in verse 22, I want us to see the third thing that the Christmas story disrupts us with. The Christmas story disrupts us with the very presence of God. 
Read verse 22 again with me. 22 and 23. It says that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Look, you don't really get how glorious the Christmas story is until you stop and think about how this baby Jesus is God with us. You don't really get how glorious and beautiful the Christmas story is until you let it disrupt you and disturb you with the fact that this baby in the manger is God with us, God in the flesh. I love this one line in the last book of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, in the last battle. You see the characters step into this, this magical stable and it's got a whole world inside this tiny stable. The stable looks small on the outside, but inside there's a whole world. There's sky up top, there's grass underneath, and the characters are just trying to make sense of the wonder and mystery of this. And then Lucy, who's from Earth in this magical world, she says to the other characters, she says, you know, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. In our world too, she says, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. She's talking about the glory of the Christmas story. She's talking about the Christmas story. Let that truth sink in for you. Jesus was not just a man. He was not just a carpenter. He was not just a rabbi. He's not some divine therapist or your holy homeboy either. He is God in the flesh. He is God with us. Colossians 1 says that all things were created by him, by Jesus. All things were created by Jesus. He was from the beginning. All things were made by his voice. All things hold together by his thoughts and his power. That should floor you. That should cause you to wonder and adore him that this God, the God who made all that there is and sustains us right now by the sheer power of his will, that God is the baby in this manger. That, that should change everything for you. A lot of us, when we think of Jesus, we don't think of his bigness. We think of baby Jesus, nativity Jesus, meek and mild Jesus. But the beauty of the gospel is found and felt when you consider both that he's a humble child and a great God. The beauty of the gospel is found and felt when you consider that before he took on flesh, Jesus stood above creation. 
Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus leave his throne in heaven to be born in a manger? Why would the maker of men become a man? Why would the one who holds all power and wisdom and strength be willing to subject himself to the vulnerability of a small human body? The answer we see back in verse 21. When the angel told Joseph, she will bear a son. Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to bring hope for sinners. The just demands of God is that all sin require the shedding of blood because God is just, because he's righteous. And so Jesus came in a human body so that he could be the ultimate substitute for us. Jesus came as the ultimate substitute to stand in our place, no, to hang in our place, so that so he would he would live infinitely better than any of us could on our own, so that just so that he could die the death that we deserve, so that we don't have to. You see, none of us can meet the requirements of righteousness to God, and so Jesus came to do it for us. From the first moments in the manger, he came to live with us just so that he could die for us and then rise for us. When you look into Mary's womb, when you look into that small manger, I want you to see grace, amazing grace. I want you to see the glorious grace of our God and marvel at it. The Christmas story is about grace, the amazing grace of God in shocking form. The form of a humble child. You see, that's the first thing that the Christmas story sort of disrupts and disturbs us when the Christmas story disrupts us with the reality that we are sinners in need of grace. We can never exhaust that truth and that reality. That's why we begin our services every Sunday with it. We are sinners in need of grace. The natural heart, the natural man does not want to admit that. That's why we say that the Christmas story sort of disrupts us. It disturbs us. I mean, the fact that we are sinners in need of grace is the least popular of all Christian doctrines. Because we like to feel pretty awesome about ourselves. 
It's the least popular of all Christian doctrines, but there is no beauty in Christmas without it, without this fact. You see, the reason Jesus came as God with us is to save us from our sins so we could be with him. Only those who've been confronted, truly confronted by their sinfulness, can know the comfort of mercy and really know what it means to have a Merry Christmas. There's no escaping our sinfulness at Christmas time. If you're paying attention, there's no escaping our sinfulness at Christmas time. Nothing offends human pride the way that Christmas does. That God had to go through great lengths, had to give up much of his privilege and prestige to come after us, to save us. Nothing offends human pride like that. But the reason we can still say that that leads to a Merry Christmas is because nothing humbles and comforts the human soul like Christmas does either. Tim Keller puts it this way in his Christmas devotional. He says, Christmas is the end of thinking that you are better than someone else because Christmas is telling you that you could never get to heaven on your own. God had to come to you. It is telling you, Christmas is telling you that people who are saved are not those who have arisen through their own ability or their own intellect or their own strength. No, people who are saved are not those who have arisen through their own ability to be what God wants them to be. Salvation comes to those who are willing to admit how weak they are. How sinful we are. You see, Christmas tells us that God gave himself as our substitute. That is glorious grace. That he lowered himself into the manger so that he could be lowered into the grave. He lowered himself so that we could, in turn, be lifted up. You and I are always trying to fill our lives with counterfeit glories, with counterfeit gospels, things that we're scraping the bottom of the barrel after for salvation and for righteousness, but we end up tired and empty. Jesus the only one who came with true glory that we all long for, emptied himself so that we could be truly full and satisfied in him. Even if it meant costing his life. You see, Christmas should disturb us with our neediness, with our sinfulness, because it disrupts our comfort 
and then confronts us with the weight of what our sin required. The birth of the Son of God. God with us. He went through that to save, the angel said, so to save his people from their sins. He left his throne for a manger and will go from that manger to the cross. You know what the proper response to such graces? Worship. Worship. Christmas story could disrupt us. It confronts us in the best sense of the word, and it demands a response from us. We see that in the next few verses, in the beginning of Matthew 2. We won't look at it, but in the beginning of Matthew 2, you've got Herod that feels threatened by Jesus' identity and power. And he says, we got to get rid of this kid. We got to get rid of this kid and sends a kill squad after the baby Jesus. But then you have the shepherds and eventually the wise men. And they come and they fall at his feet. They fall at the feet of a baby, at the foot of a cradle, in worship of the one and true living God who's come to be with us. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you're still kind of wrestling with what you think about this whole Jesus thing and you've heard the good news of the Christmas story and you've come to this realization that you need this glory. That this glory that we speak of is something that you've longed for your whole life. You recognize and you realize that you need this grace, this Savior in your life. The good news is that the genealogy of Jesus includes the outcast, the marginalized, the scandalous, and the broken. The family that Jesus was born from is a forecast of the family that he would die for. And so if that's you this morning, know that you can come as you are to Jesus. There's no shame on the other side of the gospel, no shame on the other side of the cross, only glory and new life and a spiritual family to grow with. Or maybe you're here this morning you're already a follower of Jesus. But you recognize that perhaps you've grown too familiar with the Christmas story. You no longer marvel at it. No longer brings you to wonder and awe. And if that's you, then receive the word of God this morning. And as you receive communion, remember that his vulnerable human body was broken. That his precious blood was spilt for you. He came so that his body would be broken 
and his blood would be spilt for you. Have your faith strengthened and nourished through the communion meal. For all of us, let's not only sing of his glory now, but let's live for the glory of Christ the King each and every day. The one who disrupts our lives in the best sense of that word and brings us home to God. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.